Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. This will be a lecture in the series Doorways in Time, The Great Archaeological Discoveries, and this is number six, Early Audio Recordings. This lecture is brought to you by the letter B, and if you don't know yet exactly what that means, I'll explain later. But thanks to the support of patrons, I now will be working with the wonderful opera, theater, and audio director and producer, Dan Rogers. We have been discussing recently how we can branch out into ventures like video, lectures on music and history, and possibly live lectures. And I will update patrons and listeners about that more later and hopefully have time to introduce Dan to the audience so you get to know him more. But this lecture, as promised, will be on the rediscovery and recovery of early audio recordings. So in recent years, within the past 20 years, there's been something of a revolution in the recovery of not only lost and forgotten early technologies of audio recording, but even of surviving recordings themselves, which for more than a century have been unplayable and presumed lost. And the story of this revolution, arguably, one could say, begins in March 2008. So in that month, just about 15 years ago, a group called the First Sounds Collective, or First Sounds Initiative, which is a self-organized group of scientists and scholars mainly based at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California, came forward with a dramatic announcement, namely that they had excavated the earliest known recording of music and of the human voice, which had been made a full 17 years before Edison's invention of the phonograph, which had customarily been considered as the dawn of sound recording, and a full 28 years before the earliest known surviving sound recording, which was of a Handel oratorio. This discovery was intended to be announced at a conference of the Association for Recorded Sound Collections at Stanford University, but the New York Times, you could say, scooped them and rushed to print an article about the discovery the day before this conference. And according to this New York Times article from March 2008, the First Sounds group had found this recording in an archive in Paris among papers that had been deposited there by an obscure French printer and inventor named Édouard Léon Scott de Martinville. So how was this discovery made? Well, according to the writings of this group that called itself First Sounds, they first organized in order to develop techniques to play back unplayable early sound recordings. And they formulated a set of software and machinery beginning in 2002 in order to scan physical objects, create a high-resolution map of their surface, and then simulate a needle or stylus passing over them in order to then generate a digital sound file. Their first project was actually early recordings that Thomas Edison had made of the elevated train in New York City in 1878. So these would have been produced right on the heels of when Edison had announced his creation of the phonograph. But these recordings were unusual. 
They were not on cylinders or any sort of physical record object, but rather they were printed images of waveforms on paper, and they were held in the collection of the Thomas Edison National Historic Park in New Jersey, which was looking for someone to somehow interpret these printed waveforms. So in December 2007, this first sounds group used technology at the Berkeley Lab to translate these Edison prints into sound, but they also found something very strange along with the sound forms themselves. They found in a magazine at the time an interview in which Thomas Edison said that he had not invented the device that he used to make these recordings of the elevated train. Rather, he said that he had used a device called a phonautograph, which, according to Edison, had been invented sometime earlier by someone else, to whom he referred as, quote, Leon Scott of France. So the group then set out to verify who this person was and whether or not he had in fact invented an early sound recording device, possibly predating Edison's phonograph. And consulting with archivists in France, they found that he was in fact a real person and that he had claimed to have built a so-called phone autograph capable of recording sound as far back as the 1850s. So what is a phone autograph? Well, you can see the component parts of the word phone for sound, auto for self, and graph for writing. So it's something that seems to write down sound on its own in a, in a mechanical or autonomous way. And in his papers, Scott described in some detail the building, the construction of this instrument. It involved a barrel-shaped horn that would collect sounds and in turn vibrate an internal membrane that then would move a stylus in order to trace waves in a blackened, soot-covered surface such as a sheet of glass or paper. Scott deposited multiple reports and drawings about this invention with the Académie des Sciences, or Academy of Sciences in Paris, as well as several other institutions. He was very concerned to stake his claim to this invention. The first sounds group suspected that these papers that Scott had deposited in these archives might contain actual phone autograms, or these written or printed images of the waveforms that he had claimed to record. In 2007, a researcher from the group named David Giovannoni found six dossiers containing several dozen phone autograms. He digitally scanned images of these waveforms, hoping that then the group would be able to reconvert them into sounds. So, very quickly in the early months of 2008, the group tried to interpret them, and one of them, Earl Cornell, used his program called a virtual stylus to simulate sounds as if the visual lines in Scott's phonautograms were grooves in a record. The results, it seems, were fairly poor for various reasons, including that many waves were jumbled because the sheets had moved through the phonautograph at changing, halting speeds, sometimes even turning backwards. And there were many flaws and pitfalls to the design of this phonautograph, including that the record needle sometimes swung all the way off the page. And hence it seemed practically impossible to decipher anything recognizable or understandable from these supposed recordings. One of the co-founders of the group named Patrick Feaster proposed a different method of interpretation, namely breaking the waveforms down into different frequency ranges 
and then feeding these into software designed to read soundtracks of films. And with this method in mind, they then searched for a waveform image or phonogram from Scott's papers that this method might work on. And they found among them in the papers in the Académie des Sciences a phonogram that seemed to have fairly distinct readable sound waves. And this one did produce an intelligible sound, namely what seems to be a young girl's voice singing lines from the common French folk song Au Clair de la Lune. This song is about a man who awakens late at night and then embarks on a desperate search for a candle and a pen in order to write something down, perhaps a dream. And one might speculate that maybe this choice of song might have been a reference to Scott's own quest, the inventor's quest to record sound. And more specifically, the words that are just barely intelligible to a French ear that are heard in this recording seem to be from the beginning of the second verse, or at least seemed at first to be the beginning of the second verse of the song, which begins, quote, Au clair de la lune, Pierrot répondit. Now, later on in the following year or two, the group discovered that, in fact, the playback speed that they had been using on most of these phonautograms was wrong and that it actually should be played back much slower. And they came to this realization firstly because they recovered a recording of lines from an Italian play titled Aminta, and they reconstructed what sounded again like a high female voice. But on the phonautogram itself, it seems that the inventor, Scott, wrote in a note where he identified himself as the speaker. And hence, they slowed down the playback speed. And when slowed down in this way, other voice recordings, including that early recording of Au Clair de la Lune, sound like the same person, an adult man, probably Scott himself. So the improved version with the slower tempo, the lower voice, and the later parts clarified was then released in 2010, and in this version, it sounds more as if the speaker, presumably Scott, is reciting the very beginning of the first verse of the song, Au clair de la lune, mon ami Pierrot, prête-moi. So the announcement of this recovery of the Au Clair de la Lune recording, which had been completely forgotten, really, in the world for more than 100 years, this recovery spurred on a wave of new rediscoveries, which has continued from 2008 to today, which includes, for one thing, many more Scott phonautograms from that early collection, as well as other early, rare, or highly fragile phonograph cylinders, from the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. And as it becomes possible now to observe visual markings on objects and digitally translate them into sound waves, 
a whole sort of auditory world of the 19th century is suddenly coming to life, which had always been presumed lost. And in historical perspective, we really can see that today, in the 21st century, we have now reached a point where the earliest recording technologies of sound, of images, and of motion pictures, including early photography and film, are now becoming inaccessible in their original form because none of them were originally made to last. They were mainly just experiments or demonstrations, and they were using materials such as celluloid that break down, that were not intended to last for generations, much less for centuries. But now, with digital technology, they can be interpreted in completely new and different ways that those early inventors didn't imagine. And hence, these earliest cases have to be recovered and reconstructed using more and more elaborate techniques. Now, this whole phenomenon that I'm talking about might not really fall under what we customarily think of as archaeology, in quotation marks. This whole process of rediscovery is happening outside of the formal academic discipline, and it's involving totally different materials, techniques, and settings. No one here is going and digging in muddy pits or caves or hidden chambers of tombs or temples. But nonetheless, this process does involve long-forgotten or discarded objects, which sometimes turn up in unexpected places, closets, cabinets, vaults, or in dusty, untouched archival files. And they involve some of the same kinds of thought processes. Again, although the techniques might be totally different and the subject matter is more recent than most archaeological endeavors, nonetheless, one has to use physical and textual clues, cross-checking, reflecting one another to try to reconstruct what happened and when and how. So in the light of all this new research and discovery and rediscovery, what can we say now about the dawn of sound recording, of the earliest efforts of human beings to preserve sound waves as they traveled in the air. Well, for many years, for centuries, sound had been recorded in quotation marks in various systems, such as music notation, which goes back in various forms all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia. But these techniques always require conscious human intervention and representation after the fact. Right? It's always a human ear, a human mind, and a human hand creating things like music notation. There was no method of direct capture of sounds as they occur. And that idea was really just in the realm of fantasy for many centuries. But thinking started to shift starting in the 1830s with the invention of photography. So photography of, began, of course, as a system of chemicals that react directly to light beams in order to then capture an image. The success of photography inspired the idea that somehow the same thing ought to be possible with sound. And there's even a quotation from a theater critic in Paris in 1847 when this idea was gaining traction, where this theater critic wrote, quote, Just as light captures images on a polished plate, we will soon preserve the sonic undulations of a song by Mario, a tirade of Miss Rachel, or a couplet of Frederick Lemaitre. So it was clear that this idea was around in the air, you could say, by the middle of the 19th century. But as far as we can tell, the earliest person to seriously take up the effort to accomplish this 
was a French printer in Paris named Édouard Léon Scott de Martinville. So this is a complex French name. First name, his given name is Édouard Léon, a classic hyphenated double first name, basically Edward Léon. Then his surname is Scott, which is a Scottish name, which derives from a paternal ancestor of his who had migrated from Scotland to France. And then de Martinville is an honorific that his family was also able to acquire. So technically speaking, his surname is Scott. So Scott had published and printed various books in his workshop in Paris over the course of his career. And among them was a book of physiology by a physician named François Achille Langer. And when he was printing this book, reportedly an idea occurred to him, the notion of making machines that mimic the structure of the human ear which would be able to then hear and record speech in a visual form and hence preserve the appearance, the image of the sound waves. In 1853 to 54, Scott began tinkering and experimenting on this idea, and he obtained support from the Société d'Encouragement pour l'Industrie Nationale, the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry. A few years later, in 1857, he began making formal reports of his results. In March 1857, he obtained a French patent for what he called a phonautograph, as I said, a self-recording of sound instrument. So this phonautograph, it was the first known device to make a record of sound waves captured directly from the air without the intervention of a human hand. And it would work by funneling sound in order to vibrate a membrane, playing the same basic role as an eardrum. So all working on the analogy to the ear. This vibrating membrane would then move a needle, while meanwhile the operator would feed in sheets of paper or glass slides, which had been blackened with soot from smoke. And the needle, in theory, would carve into the blackened surface waving lines, mimicking the sound waves. So this method was very imprecise. But when one looks at Scott's early phonautograms, which he produced with this machine, in some cases, certain clusters of sounds, like words, can be discerned visually. Now, the purpose of this device was not to play back or recreate the sounds. Rather, his hope was that these visual phonautograms could be used to interpret or analyze the sounds. So he hoped that it could be used, for instance, for dictation, a way of making a direct record of speech without having to have a human secretary write down what one is saying. And hence, in a, in a way, you could say he imagined this as a labor-saving device, right? A way of automating away a certain secretarial task. But it was clear pretty quickly that it couldn't be used for that. And there are a number of reasons. The human eye is not able to discern on a waveform the full range of sounds of the human voice. And this is something I can speak to myself as a podcaster who edits my own, <laughs> my own audio files using visual waveforms. There are a few sounds like T or K that are fairly distinctly recognizable in a waveform or the S, the high-pitched hiss of the S. But apart from that, when one talks about different vowel sounds, M and N, or distinguishing voiced and unvoiced consonants like T and D, those are too subtle to be able to discern by the eye. You can only distinguish them if you have a way of playing the sound back and hearing it. So the phonautograph was a failure as far as being able to 
record words precisely. But nonetheless, a few scientists and linguists did buy models based on Scott's prototype. In order to use them in various sort of experiments, studying acoustics and the dynamics of speech, especially of vowel sounds, because the phonograms could show you the pitch and frequency of different voiced sounds. Nonetheless, the invention never took off. It was never mass produced. It was never used in any sort of mass media or entertainment, and it remained obscure and really only known among small circles of inventors and scientists. Nonetheless, we can now say, looking at Scott's records, that in the years from 1857 to 59, he made a number of phonogram recordings. These recordings, when one attempts to play them back digitally using Patrick Feaster's method, they're mostly extremely vague and choppy. But a few, nonetheless, have reproduced something discernible, like、uh, sounds basically like squawking. The earliest dated record that's been found in Scott's papers. Is dated August seventeenth, eighteen fifty-seven, and it seems to be a passage of an unidentified song. The phonogram sheet is labeled quote, "song at a distance," and then another note at the beginning of the waveform says quote, "jeune juvencelle," which means "young little girl," and then at the end it is labeled "les echos" or "the echoes." So, in retrospect, with all of the work that First Sounds has done, it seems as if this probably was the earliest surviving record of a human voice. Now, in 1860, Scott began refining his recording methods. For one thing, he began to include with each phonogram a test recording with a 250 hertz tuning fork, and this was intended then to make the exact pitches and playback speeds more clear, perhaps for the purpose of studying and analyzing vowel sounds. For the first sounds collective, this also provided then a control. It allowed for more precise determination of the right playback speeds, and corrections of halts or shifts in the recording process. And so, for these reasons, these recordings can be reconstructed much better and more precisely. On April ninth, eighteen sixty, Scott recorded his passage of "Au Clair de la Lune." Apparently, the cranking. As he was making the recording, his cranking was uneven, and hence, in the middle of the last line, it seems the crank slowed down, almost to a full stop. Perhaps because Scott was looking and checking to see how much paper he had left. Eight days later, on April seventeenth, eighteen sixty, Scott then recorded his recitation of lines from a French version of the play Othello by Jean-François Dussy, written in French in the seventeen hundreds. And he probably did this because he hoped that phonograms could be used to analyze the nuances of dramatic speech. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
So as he practiced and experimented, it seems that he recorded lines from this French version of Othello several times. And then on April 20th, 1860, he tried recording Au Clair de la Lune again. By this time, the vibrating membrane had been somewhat improved. And according to the first sound scientists, it seems that this time there was no dramatic slowdown in the middle of the recording process. It was much more steady and consistent, perhaps because by now Scott had practiced and he knew how much of the line could fit on one sheet of paper. following month, on May 17th, Scott recorded a vocal scale, perhaps to use as a key to analyze musical recordings. Later that year, in September 1860, it seems Scott made a last batch of recordings. The final one of all probably was a line from the song Vol Petite Abeille, or Fly Little Bee, from a recent French comic opera called La Reine Topaz by Victor Massé. <laughs> So it seems by the end of 1860, Scott felt that he had completed his experiments and gotten everything he could out of his phonautograph invention, and he mainly tasked himself with submitting papers and records to archives and to scientific academies to prove the efficacy of his invention. Now, soon after, others, both in Europe and North America, began to take similar principles inspired to varying degrees by Scott's invention and reapply them. So over the course of the 1860s, several technicians actually took Scott's idea of creating an instrument that mimics the ear and you could say went a step backwards in the sense that they began attempting to make recordings in phonautogram form using actual ears taken from human and animal cadavers. This was first attempted by the Viennese ear doctor Adam Pulitzer in July 1861. A short time later, a colleague of Pulitzer named August Luquet did the same thing in 1862, actually attaching the small stylus to the eardrum directly of a, an ear taken from a cadaver. And doing this, he did manage to create a few phonautographs with recognizable waveforms, which were then published. And centuries later, when the first sounds collective attempted to make a sound file to play back the sounds from this ear experiment, it just basically sounds like static. There's no real discernible tone to it. But nonetheless, it did at least produce a wave. Shortly after, the first working phonautograph in the United States was created by an MIT student from Minnesota named Charles Wilson Morey. And Morey attached levers 
to the membrane of the phonautograph in order to amplify the motions of the stylus and to make stronger recordings with greater amplitudes. In 1874, Mori published his designs and his results, including several phonautograms. And this instrument then, created by Mori, based on Scott's invention, was then used by Alexander Graham Bell in order to make more phonautograms to study the behaviors of vowel sounds. And one of Mori's published phonautograms was described as an oo sound, as in the word mood. First sounds then obtained this phonautogram and converted it into a sound file. So clearly we can see that the phonautograph was finding some uses and applications by the mid-1870s. But there was the remaining looming question, was it possible somehow to make recordings that could actually be played back and heard the way that they originally sounded? And the first effort to address this challenge, it seems, was undertaken by another French inventor who also happened to be a poet and a polymath named Charles Clot. So Charles Clot was very imaginative and ambitious, but it seems he did not have much of a competitive spirit, since a few years earlier in 1869, Clot had proposed a new method of color photography using a series of colored glass filters. And he proposed this idea publicly to the Académie des Sciences. But on the very same day, another inventor named Louis Ducot proposed a similar system. And Clot, it seems, conceded priority to Ducot and did not try to compete with him for the title of inventor of color photography. Now, he continued his scientific and technical tinkerings. And in 1877, Clot proposed the idea of a paleophone. And his basic proposal was inspired by Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone just the year before. And in concept, Clot believed it should be possible to record a sound and then replay it back later. So he proposed at least the concept of a device that was basically similar to a phonautograph and that used a membrane and a vibrating screw in order to carve into a rotating lamp-blacked glass disc or cylinder. And then subsequently, the markings on that glass cylinder or disc could then be photo-engraved to make deep grooves. So in theory, then, the recording system would be reversible. The cylinder could be rotated with a needle moving in the grooves in order to create vibrations and reproduce the sounds. Now, Clot registered this idea by submitting it in a sealed envelope to the Académie des Sciences in April 1877. And furthermore, a magazine article about his idea appeared in a journal later that year, in October. But Clot never built a prototype of his putative invention. Apparently, he was scooped again, this time by an American. And so Clot never developed his idea in detail, and he turned instead to working on a different project, namely alien communication. So Clot believed that there were cities on the planets Mars and Venus, and he repeatedly petitioned the French government to build giant complexes of mirrors to concentrate solar beams and project them onto surfaces on those planets in order to communicate with their alien inhabitants. In other words, you might say he wanted French space lasers. 
But nonetheless, this American inventor who had just barely preempted him by a matter of weeks, this, of course, was Thomas Alva Edison. So in January 1878, Edison obtained an American patent for the same basic sort of device, using a cylinder wrapped in tinfoil, and he called this device a phonograph. So Edison had been working on a device to record telegraphic messages using indentations on paper, which could then be fed back into the telegraph and resent repeatedly. So he then conceived, based on that, of the idea of a device that would do the same thing with telephone messages. And from that line of thinking, he came up with this phonograph, a device with two diaphragm and needle units one of them to impress waves into grooves on a foil-covered cylinder, and then the other to run back over those grooves in order to replay the sound. In 1877, Edison had one of his assistants build a prototype, and he demonstrated that it could, in fact, replay sounds. And reportedly, the first recording that he made of any sound was his own voice reciting lines from Mary Had a Little Lamb. So as I said, at first, the phonograph used metal cylinders wrapped in pliable tinfoil, which seemed to work fairly well. And the following year, in 1878, Edison created the Edison Speaking Phonograph Company in order to mass-produce this instrument. But there were major problems and limitations. A major problem, for one, was that the cylinders were very fragile. They could only be copied a limited number of times, no more than a few hundred times, before that first prototype recording wore down. And that's apart from simply playing back the cylinders. So each cylinder could only be played just a handful of times, maybe five or six, before the tinfoil fell apart and it became unplayable. So for these reasons, the early surviving recordings made by Thomas Edison and his workshop are almost all lost. From basically the first 15 years, they have all been destroyed and cannot be replayed. There are, however, a few recordings that Edison made that have been recovered by the First Sounds Collective. But these earliest surviving recordings by Edison and his team are not on phonograph cylinders. Rather, they are phonautograms. So how did this come about? Well, in 1878, shortly after inventing the phonograph, Edison was commissioned to study the noise from the elevated train that ran through New York City, supposedly to analyze why this loud noise was irritating. Somebody thought that was a worthwhile investigation. So Edison had his assistant, Charles Batchelor, take a phonograph and retrofit the recording apparatus with phonautograph parts in order to make visual records of sound waves that could be retroactively studied and analyzed. And Edison told the New York Herald in this interview that I mentioned earlier, he told them, quote, The principle of the phonautograph is the invention of Leon Scott of France. By the additions of which I have attached for this purpose, we are enabled not only to record all the sounds, but to analyze each particular sound and tell the working condition of every section of a railroad, end quote. So it seems that Edison and his group made a total of 19 phonautograms of the L train passing by, and these were later then educed by first sounds. And most of them just sound vaguely like a roaring or a rumbling with a lot of static. But one example of the phonautogram stands out as rather unusual. 
It begins and ends with what sounds like speech, perhaps of the assistant Charles Batchelor, who had created this retrofitted phonograph. And this particular phonogram was recorded in September 1878, and it is labeled in writing, quote, Metropolitan Elevated Railroad from 40 feet away. So if, as I mentioned, those sounds at the beginning and end of that recording are the voice of Charles Batchelor, then we can say that that is the earliest surviving sound recording of the voice of an American. So in the following decade, in the 1880s, Edison basically pulled away from the sound recording business. His company was producing phonographs and wax cylinders for recordings, but they didn't make any new innovations for a number of years, and Edison instead redirected his efforts to developing the electric light bulb. And during this decade, Alexander Graham Bell, a major rival, basically overtook Edison and made improvements on the system of sound recording and playback, mainly trying to improve the quality and clarity of sound recordings. So Alexander Graham Bell created the first graphophone in 1880, which worked slightly differently in that it would incise waves into a soft wax cylinder. And so it did not cut vertically into the surface of the cylinder. Rather, the stylus would wave back and forth, creating a tiny waveform, sort of parallel to the way a phonograph worked, creating a waveform on glass or paper. And this method created much better quality of sound. And so with Bell's success and his, his aggressive entry into the sound recording market, this then spurred Edison eventually to return back to trying to improve the phonograph. And in the late 1880s, he basically stole most of Bell's and others' innovations. And in 1888, Edison's company introduced a new variety of phonograph, which was precise enough in its recording mechanisms that people could easily use it to record themselves at home. And it would record into a wax cylinder. And these cylinders, like the earlier ones still, they could only be played back a few times before they would eventually crack and disintegrate. So in terms of durability, they were not a big improvement over the foil-covered cylinders. And they could not be copied at all. You could only create one and play it until it was exhausted. But nonetheless, despite these limitations, a few of these Edison wax cylinders from the 1880s and 90s do still survive just because of the sheer number of them that were produced. And in recent years, troves of Edison wax cylinders have been found in libraries, in museum archives, and in homes and workshops. Most of them are simple home recordings of things like happy birthday or people introducing themselves. But these also include the very significant Mapleson cylinders, which is a collection of 140 wax cylinders 
recording live performances of musicians at the Metropolitan Opera between 1901 and 1903. And some of these surviving cylinders are still intact and playable, but they are very fragile. And of course, many others have already cracked or broken apart. So in 2016, an inventor named Nicholas Berg created what he called the Endpoint Cylinder and Dictabelt Machine, which uses lasers to scan the wax grooves on these Edison cylinders and create from them a digital file. And just last year, in 2022, the New York Public Library obtained one of these machines from Berg. And it apparently will take several years to use it to digitize all of the cylinders just in their own collection, including the surviving Mapleson cylinders. And they say that when that is completed, they will make the files free and openly available to the public. So that more or less sums up the current state of rediscovery and recovery of early phonautograms and Edison cylinders. But for the inventors in the 19th century, once the phonograph and Bell's graphophone had come onto the market, the next problem, of course, was the problem of preservation, how to make a durable recording, ideally one that could be both played back and copied an unlimited number of times ad infinitum. It seems that the first attempts at solving this problem were undertaken at the Volta Laboratories under the supervision of Alexander Graham Bell in Washington, D.C., so between 1881 and 85, technicians, mainly Charles Tainter in the Volta Laboratories, tried to make recordings on flat rotating discs made of various sorts of metal, glass, or cardboard covered with wax into which the initial recording could be incised. The records that they made are mostly in the collection of the Smithsonian Institution, and for over 100 years, they were considered unplayable. But in 2011, Patrick Feaster of the First Sounds Group used similar methods at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in order to scan and create sound files from the grooves on these records. And he began initially with six recordings as a sort of proof of concept. And one of these six was made most likely in 1884. So by that point, by 1884, Tainter had progressed pretty far in his experiments. And this particular record was made on a brass disc covered with wax. And it seems to have been recovered in a pretty clear, comprehensible form. So what I'm going to do now is play the file that the First Sounds Collective created from this 1884 disc. And I won't say what it is, just see what you think of it. So perhaps some of you were able to make out that those are the first five lines of Hamlet's famous soliloquy, To Be or Not to Be, from Shakespeare's play. And you can perhaps tell that the recording and preservation of these sounds has now improved to the point that they are still comprehensible in a way that the earlier phonautograms are not. Now, as I said, Patrick Feaster already analyzed 
those six selected recordings from the Volta Laboratories collection at the Smithsonian back in 2011. But it was just reported this month, just a few weeks ago, in January 2023, that the Smithsonian National Museum of American History will acquire similar instruments to those that have been used at the New York Public Library and work together with the First Sounds group at Berkeley Laboratories in order to scan and play back all of these early experimental sound recordings, over 300 of them, from Bell's Volta Laboratory. And these Volta records are significant historically, and it may be interesting to see what is on them, but nonetheless, they never got a good final design. The Volta group never put together a good final design for the purpose of mass reproduction. And that question of creating durable recordings that could be played back and copied ad infinitum, this was addressed in a more effective way a few years later in 1887 by an inventor named Emil Berliner. So he was an inventor and technician from a German-Jewish heritage working in the United States, and he created what he called the gramophone which was similar to a phonograph. You can see these guys are are digging around for different arrangements and rearrangements of the same Greek roots. And Berliner's gramophone was broadly similar to the phonograph, but it engraved onto a rotating wax-covered zinc disc, which then could be chemically engraved in order to make a permanent master copy. And this master copy could then be reproduced with molds in various materials. So Berliner founded the Gramophone Company in the United States, as well as others in Great Britain and Germany, in order to mass produce the instruments and the recordings. Shortly after, Alexander Graham Bell started Columbia Records as a breakaway rival company using the same basic principles. And then later, in 1901, Edison again returned to the sound recording industry and invented a way to mass-produce identical cylinders by making a gold master recording and then making wax duplicates from it. So after that point, once you have the Gramophone Company, Columbia Records, and Edison all using these similar techniques of making durable and copyable recordings, mass production of sound really took off, and the sound recording industry really exploded. So after that point, about 1901, there are a great wealth of surviving recordings. And it's really mainly for these earlier records from before 1901 that these new digital technologies have had to be applied. But nonetheless, over the course of the last 15 years, there have been other new discoveries of early sound recordings that don't necessarily directly involve digital technology, but rather have resulted from just good old-fashioned searching and investigating, looking through and locating or just accidentally discovering lost physical objects. A big example of that is the so-called block recordings. So for decades, all through the 20th century, there had been rumors of a massive trove of early sound recordings of performances by great classical musicians of the 19th century, like Tchaikovsky, and of readings and recitations by great authors like Tolstoy. And they supposedly had been recorded in the 1890s and early 1900s on an Edison phonograph by a Russian-Jewish businessman named Julius Bloch. People of many different backgrounds searched for years 
for these supposed lost block recordings, and many scholars came to believe that they had been destroyed in one war or revolution or another, to which Russia has been subject over the last century, and most of them despaired that they would ever be found. But nonetheless, in 2008, an American professor found them in an archive in St. Petersburg. The collection was found to include almost all of the great musical stars of the late 1800s, most of which had never been heard on record before. And among them, it also in included a Mozart song titled Gavot, performed by the famous violinist Yasha Heifetz when he was 11 years old in 1912. Now, most of these block recordings have now been digitized and released commercially. I'm not going to wrestle with trying to get the rights to play them right now. I will conclude this lecture finally with what I consider the best discovery of all, an incredible discovery involving both the resurfacing of physical record objects and the application of new digital instruments of interpretation. And this particular record was found among what we will call the Von Gemann recordings. So how did this discovery come about? In 1957, curators at Thomas Edison's old laboratory in West Orange, New Jersey, looked into a cabinet behind the cot where Edison would habitually sleep when he stayed over at his laboratory. And they found inside a box, a wooden box, with 17 unlabeled wax cylinders in tubes. They were afraid that these cylinders could not be played. They were probably too fragile and might simply be destroyed. Now, years later, these National Park curators reached out to scientists and scholars to search for a way to recover them. And one curator, Jerry Farbus, was able to digitally read 12 out of the 17 cylinders and produce wave files from them. They appeared to be recordings of music and speech, mostly in foreign languages, especially German and French. So Farbus from there contacted Patrick Feaster of the First Sounds Collective and the historian Stephen Puyel in order to help identify these recordings. They had one clue to begin with to, to figure out who these sounds and voices were, and when and where they had been produced. So on the lid of the box had been scratched a label with two names, Von Gemann and Edison. So who was Von Gemann? This was the last name of Adelbert Theodor Edward Von Gemann, often called Theo, who was a German technician who joined Edison's lab in 1888 in order to help improve and promote phonograph recording techniques so as part of Edison's process of turning back to sound recording. And using this clue, the curators and their collaborators were able to come to certain conclusions. For one thing, they found in their research that Theo von Gemann had traveled to Europe in the summer of 1889, so just shortly after joining Edison's lab. And he went to Europe in order to attend the World's Fair at Paris and to run the phonograph exhibition at the fair. After the fair was over, he remained in Europe, and in the fall and winter of 1889-90, to 90, he traveled on to his native Germany, and then finally to Budapest. And in each place, he visited and recorded the voices of major public figures and musical performances. And the whole time that he was traveling, the Edison Company constantly shipped him batches of blank cylinders from America to Europe as they were being manufactured. 
adding up in total to more than a thousand. So this trip and recording tour by Van Gemann has long been known of, but the one and only surviving recording from it that has ever been found up to that point was a musical recording of a Brahms piece. And the sound quality from that cylinder is very poor. The piano melody, which is believed to have been played by Brahms himself, is really barely discernible in the noise and static. And this long discouraged further research because it made it seem as if it would probably not be worth it even to find the rest. They would not even be playable recordings. But still, it was known in the historical record that he had visited many other people. And so the group of scholars concluded that most likely these lost cylinders that had been found in the cabinet were the results of von Gemann's tour, at least one small selection of the product of von Gemann's tour in 1889-90, which had never been reproduced or even played to anyone's knowledge. And these rediscovered recordings were found to include famous pianists and singers, both German and Hungarian, such as the Tatianu sisters. They also included the earliest known recording of a Chopin composition. Most of these musical recordings are really too degraded to listen to for pleasure, but nonetheless, they do give certain historical information and clues about performance styles and techniques at that time. The recordings in this cabinet box also include prominent statesmen and public figures, such as the renowned German military strategist Helmut von Moltke, who was recorded reciting lines from Shakespeare and from Goethe's Faust. It happens that Moltke at that time was 89 years old. He'd been born in 1800, and hence this recording is of the oldest person, that's the earliest born person who's ever been captured on audio. But even beyond that, most remarkable of all is a cylinder recording about one minute and 16 seconds long, which is of a man's voice, a man who is not identified on the recording, but who is heard reciting lines of verse in several different languages, but with a discernibly German accent. So I will play for you now this full recording as it was extracted from this cylinder in the cabinet box so that you can hear what it sounds like in full and see what you think of it. So perhaps some of you may have been able to discern some 
words that you might have recognized in that recording. But before we talk about exactly what was said, first, the question, of course, is who is this? Well, reportedly, in the archives of a German castle near Hamburg called Friedrichsruhe, there are records which record that Theo von Gemann visited and made a recording there at the castle on October 9th, 1889. And it seems as if this recording that we just heard must be that one that's referred to in those archival records. So the initial introduction that you hear at the beginning of the record is pretty clearly in German, and it seems to be in a slightly higher or lighter voice, perhaps a different person who then speaks the rest of the words and the rest of the recording. And I would theorize that most likely that is the voice of Theo von Gemann himself introducing when and where the record was made. And those initial words in that little introduction, they are largely unintelligible. It seems as if perhaps he's reciting a date, but they're hard to make out. But it is fairly clear that the first word that he speaks is Friedrichsruhe. So then the obvious question, of course, is why did von Gemann go and make this record at Friedrichsruhe? Well, it happens that this castle was the country home of none other than the Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck, of course, famous and immortal as the architect of German unification, the inventor of modern Realpolitik, and arguably the great towering figure of European politics in the later 19th century. So these German records and reports tell us that von Gemann went to Friedrichsruhe in October, and Bismarck, although he was fascinated and entertained by the phonograph, he was very reluctant to make a recording of his own voice, but he finally did so at the urging of his wife. So these basic facts or claims were known for many years in the historical record, but no one knew what had become of the recording itself. Beginning in 2005, German archivists began searching and scouring through Germany and the United States trying to find this recording if it still survived, which if it did survive, it would be the only known existing recording of Bismarck's voice. But no one could find it, and eventually it was given up as lost. But then just a few years later, it turned up in this cabinet cache from the Edison lab in New Jersey. So if we say it seems as if the clues add up that this probably is Bismarck, what is he saying? Well, I'm going to go through now the contents of what is heard on the record, and then I will play it again so you can again hear it for yourself. So the record begins with a brief introductory statement in German, which seems to place the recording at Friedrichsruhe, and which I think most likely is the voice of von Gemann. Then a few seconds later, we hear what seems to be a deeper voice reciting the first verse of a song in English. And specifically, it's an American 19th century folk song called In Good Old Colony Times. So we hear the voice recite, quote, In good old colony times, when we lived under the king, three roguish chaps fell into mishaps because they could not sing. This verse in English is strange and striking, but it actually further bolsters, and I would say proves, the identification of this voice as that of Bismarck. Because older publications, including an American songbook called Series of Old American Songs from 1936, specifically identified this song as a favorite of Bismarck's, 
he reportedly learned it during his university days at Göttingen from an American classmate, and reportedly he even once quoted it in debate at the Reichstag. Following this American verse, we then also hear lines from a German ballad about the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa and his expedition on the Third Crusade. So in German, it is Als Kaiser Rotbart Lobesam zum Heiligen Land gezogen kam, das muss er mit dem frommen Herr durch ein Gebirge Wüst und Leer. Or in English, roughly, when good Emperor Redbeard was journeying to the Holy Land, he had to go with his pious army through mountains desolate and empty. So we've now heard lines in English and in German. Then next we hear a verse from an old Latin poem titled Gaudeamus Igitur, which is a traditional Latin festive song sung by university students. So in Latin, Gaudeamus Igitur, Juvenes Dum Sumus, Post Jucundam Juventutem, Post Molestam Senectutem, Nos Habebit Humus. Let us rejoice, therefore, while we are young, after a pleasant youth, after a troubling old age, we will return to the earth. Then fifthly, we hear the first verse of the Marseillaise, a French revolutionary song which had been adopted as the national anthem of the French Republic, which has struck many people as strange, considering that France was the great rival of Germany and that Bismarck had basically launched his unification of Germany by attacking France in the Franco-Prussian War. But nonetheless, we hear these opening lines. Allons enfants de la patrie, le jour de gloire est arrivé. Contre nous de la tyrannie, l'étendard sanglante élevé. Arise, children of the homeland, the day of glory has arrived. Against us, the bloody banner of tyranny is raised. And then finally, the last element of the recording is a brief aphoristic advice that Bismarck seems to deliver to his son Herbert. Treibe alles in Massen und Sittlichkeit, namentlich das Arbeiten, dann aber auch das Essen und im Übrigen gerade auch das Trinken. Rat eines Vaters an seinen Sohn. Do everything in moderation and good order, including work, but then also eating and most especially drinking. Advice from a father to his son. So according to the documentary records, this cylinder from Friedrichsruhe was taken by von Gumann to Budapest and played for Bismarck's son, Herbert. And we don't know exactly what his reaction was, but most likely Herbert saw the irony of Bismarck's advice, since Otto von Bismarck himself was known for his enormous appetites and his immoderate lifestyle. So you could say the recording ends here with a classic case of a father saying, do as I say and not as I do. So lastly now, I will just replay this recording again, and then I will give a final thank you message to those who made this lecture possible, including patrons.
So finally, as for thanks, special thanks to the First Sounds Collective for recovering long-lost audio recordings and sharing their files freely with the global public at firstsounds.org. All audio files used in this lecture are courtesy of First Sounds, except for the Edison von German Cylinder recording of Chancellor Bismarck, which is courtesy of the National Park Service and the Cylinder Archive. And lastly, as I said, this lecture is brought to you by the letter B, and so I will thank now by name my current active patrons, beginning with the letter B. Becky Mann, Ben I, Ben Cartman, Benjamin Newcomb Groyser, Benjamin Plafker, Bill Kirkpatrick, Brenna Hogan, Bronwyn Keen Young, Brooke Meachin, and Brian Cam. Thank you.